five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. That was uh, John Cale, ready for war. Um, an extended uh, little opener there today. Gave me some time to uh, to wake up a little bit. Got a uh, late start today, can you tell? Uh, went to bed fairly late last night. And, uh, well, here we are. Good morning. It's Monday. And... Boy, John Cale um, had a bit of a savage side, didn't he? Sorry, you probably heard me breathing that whole time. Usually I have the mic cut off. Today I had it on. It's your fault. You didn't tell me that the mic was on. You're supposed to be my my uh, unit director, my set director, technical director. That's what you're supposed to be. You're laying down on the job, literally. Anyway, um, John Cale, former member of the Velvet Underground, along with uh, Lou Reed and uh, Sterling Morrison, Mo Tucker, and of course, Nico. Very, uh, what was the Velvets were around for what, about three or four albums? Uh, and then they broke up and they went their separate ways. John Cale actually made a pretty significant impact in music, he, he produced a lot of people. I think he might've produced, I forget which one it is. He either produced the first Devo album. I could have been Eno or could have, he could have produced uh, the first Dead Boys record. Let me just see John Kills discography here. He had, he had a savage side. He also had a very poetic side. His version of Heartbreak, Heartbreak Hotel is um, quite interesting, very dark. Oh, look at that. His birthday's March 9th, so two days from now, he's got that uh, that Pisces. Both he and Lou Reed are Pisces, so two Pisces in the Velvet Underground. That's interesting. Let's see. John Davies Cole, OBE, Order of the British, most or excellent Order of the British Empire of Chivalry, Rewarding Contributions to the Arts and Sciences, Work with Charitable and Welfare Organizations. How about that? So he is OBE. And uh, he was born in Wales in the Industrial Amon Valley of Wales uh, to Will Kale, a coal miner, and Margaret Davies, a primary school teacher. 
Although his father spoke only English, his mother spoke and taught Welsh to Kale, which hindered his relationship with his father. Although he began learning English at primary school around the age of seven, Kale was molested by two different men during his youth. An Anglican priest who molested him at a church and a music teacher. How about that? Wow, that's a heavy duty. Here, let's go to his page. Go to his Wikipedia page. That's the Lusitania behind me. If you haven't figured it out, there's a theme for today's show. It has to do with uh, false flags. Let's go to Kale's Wikipedia page. Having played organ at Amonford Church, the BBC recorded Kale playing a toccata he composed primarily on the black keys of the piano in the style of Aram Cacciatorian. His mother was institutionalized for breast cancer. He was 11. A lot of people who are well-known uh, tend to have extremely tragic events happen to them early in life. Having discovered a talent for viola, Kale joined the National Youth Orchestra of Wales at age 13, receiving a scholarship. Kale studied music at Goldsmiths College, University of London. Where he, uh, while he was there, he organized an early Flexus concert little festival of new music on 6 July 1964. He also contributed to the short film Police Car and had two scores published in Flexus Review, July 1963. The nascent avant-garde collective, he conducted the first performance of in the UK of Cage's concert for piano and orchestra. So John Cale and John Cage kind of connected there. Uh, let's see, with, with composer-pianist Michael Garrett as soloist in 1963, he traveled to the United States to continue his musical training with the assistance and influence of Aaron Copeland. So Kale's on, on his way to becoming a major composer in the new classical avant-garde tradition. Very interesting. Upon arriving in New York City, Kale met a number of influential composers on 9 September, he participated along with John Cage and several others in an 18-hour, 40-minute piano play marathon. That was his first full-length performance of Eric Satie's Vexations. After the performance, KL appeared on the television panel, I've Got a Secret, which is uh, the uh, relative, kissing cousin of What's My Line. KL's secret was that he had performed an 18-hour con concert and he was accompanied by Carl Schenzer, whose secret was that he was the only member of the audience who had stayed for the duration. Kale later attribute Cage's writings with his own relaxed artistic outlook, having hitherto been raised to believe that European composers were obliged to just justify their work. Kale played in Lamont Young's ensemble, the theater of eternal music, the heavily drone-laden music he played there proved to be a big influence in his work in his next band, The Velvet Underground. One of his collaborators on these recordings was the Velvet Underground guitarist Sterling Morris, and three albums of his early experimental work from that period were released in 2001. Despite his background in art music and the avant-garde, Kale had enjoyed and followed rock music from a young age. On a visit to Britain in 1965, he procured records by The Kinks, The Who, and Small Faces that remained unavailable in the States. Early that year, he co-founded the Velvet Underground with Lou Reed, recruiting his uh, flatmate, Angus McLeese, and Reed's college friend, Sterling Morrison, to complete the initial lineup just before the band's first 
paying gig for $75 at Summit High School in New Jersey. McLeese abruptly quit the band. He viewed accepting money for art as selling out. He was replaced by Mo Tucker and the band drummer. Initially, he uh, initially hired to play that one show. She soon became a permanent member and her tribal pounding style became an integral part of the band's music, despite the initial objections of Kale to the band having a female drummer. On his aforementioned visit to Britain in the summer of 1965, Kale shopped a crudely recorded acoustic-based Velvet Underground demo reel to several luminaries in the British rock scene, including Marianne Faithful, with the intention of securing a record deal. Although this failed to manifest, this, the tape was disseminated throughout the UK underground. Over the following 18 months by such figures as producer Joe Boyd and Mick Farron of the Deviants. As a result, the Deviants, the Yardbirds, and David Bowie all covered Velvet Underground songs prior to the release of their debut album in 1967. The very first commercially available recording of the Velvet Underground, an instrumental track called Loop, given away with Aspen Magazine, was a feedback experiment written and conducted by Kale. His creative relationship with Reed was integral to the sound of the Velvet Underground's first two albums. The Velvet Underground and Nico, recorded in 1966, released in 1967, and White Light, White Heat, recorded in 1967, released in 1968. On these albums, he plays viola, bass guitar, and piano, and sings occasional backing vocals. White Light, White Heat also features Kale and Organ on Sister Ray, as well as two vocal turns, Lady Godiva's Operation, an experimental song where he shares vocal duties with Reed and The Gift, a long spoken word piece. So there we go. In September 1968, Kale played his final gig with the Velvet Underground at the Boston Tea Party, according to Tucker. When John left, it was really sad. I felt really bad. And of course, this was going to really influence the music because John's a lunatic. I think we became a little more normal, which was fine. It was good music, good songs. It was never the same, though. It was good stuff, a lot of good songs. But just the lunacy factor was gone after the dismissal from the band. Kale was replaced by Boston-based musician Doug Yule, who played bass, guitar, keyboards, and who would soon share lead vocal duties in the band with Lou Reed. Michael Carlucci, who was friends with Robert Quine, has given the explanation about Kale's dismissal. Lou told Quine that the reason why they had to get rid of Kale in the band was Kale's ideas were just too out there. Kale had some wacky ideas. He wanted to record the next album with amplifiers underwater. That's a very Piscean thing to do, by the way. And Lou, who's a Pisces on the white, couldn't figure that out, be okay with it. Uh, Lou told Quine that the reason they had to put get rid of uh, Lou couldn't couldn't have it. He was trying to make the band more accessible. He wanted he wanted pop hits. Okay, Michael Carlucci, who is friends with Robert Quine, has given his this explanation about Kale's dismissal. Lou told Quine that the reason why he had to get rid of Kale and the band was Kale's ideas were just too out there. Kale had some wacky ideas. He wanted to record the next album with Amphorus. Okay, we saw that. Arguably, the art, artistic frictions between Kale and Reed are what shaped the band's early sound much more than any other members. The pair often had heated disagreements about the direction of the band. And this tension was central to their later collaborators. When Kale left, he seemed to take the more experimental tendencies with him, as is noticeable in comparing the proto-noise rock of white heat, white light, white heat, which Kale co-created 
to the comparatively dulcet folk rock influence the Velvet Underground recorded after his departure. Kale has favorably compared the dissonance of his Velvet Underground compositions to the indecipherable lyricism of certain strains of Southern hip hop. If I can use out of tune stuff, rappers don't need words to make sense. There's definitely lineage. Okay. Uh, he was a producer. Okay, so he did. He produced the Stooges' highly influential 1969 self-titled debut album, and a trilogy by Nico, The Marble Index, Desert Shore, and The End. On these, he accompanied Nico's voice on harmonium. In addition to, oh, he, he came across Nick Drake's music and insisted on collaborating with the fledgling artist. He appeared on Drake's second album, Brighter Later, which is generally considered the, the best of Nick Drake's albums. Playing viola and harpsichord on fly and organ and Celeste on Northern Sky. Northern Sky is a beautiful song. In addition to working as a producer, Kale also initiated his solo recording career in early 1970. His first album, Vintage Violence, is a lushly produced roots rock effort indebted to a range of disparate influences, including the band, Leonard Cohen, the Birds, Phil Spector, and Brian Wilson, the more experimental Church of Anthrax, a collaboration with minimal music pioneer Terry Riley followed in 1971, although it was actually recorded a year prior to its release. So John Cale, pretty interesting character. He produced, uh, while affiliated with the label, let's see, uh, he worked, looks like he worked here with uh, Lowell George and Little Feet, Wilton Felter of the Crusaders. And he produced Squeeze, Patti Smith, and Sham 69. Let's see what else. He was also involved with the debut of The Modern Lovers. John Cale, a very influential character. And he became, let's see, I guess he was connected with somebody in... Uh, in Austin, John Cale became very connected to the punk rock scene in uh, New York and beyond. Interesting character, to say the least. He's still around. He has a record on the Falklands. It's called the Falklands Suite, and uh, it's very elegiac. There's a lot of spoken word. I think he recites a, a Dylan Thomas poem on that record. Interesting character, and he's still around. And uh, apparently, he uh, has been, I guess he's been knighted, right? Isn't that what OBE is? Doesn't mean that you're a knight. Can we knight you? You you have given tremendous amount of service to this show. Tremendous amount of service. Jasper the Lionhearted. Tremendous amount of service. What would this show be without you? It would be my show. It would be good. Don't get me wrong. It would still be a good show. But it wouldn't be as good. Not without you. Not without you. Very uh, vivid image there of the Lusitania. We're going to talk about the Lusitania. And we're also going to talk about other false flags as we inch closer and closer to what feels like World War Three, or at least the, uh, the staging ground for the arrival of the Antichrist, which we should probably start to talk about as we hurdle towards the potential for catastrophic global events. 
and we're going to get into them today. We have to, we have to let the air out a little bit here so we can have a reasonable discussion about what the hell is going on in the world. Uh, one of the things we're going to talk about, and you can see with the cover of, or the image for today's show, not the backdrop here on the green screen, but we're going to talk about Gavrilo Princip and who is really the guy who kickstarts World War One. Now for the Americans, we have the Lusitania, which is in the background. And we're going to go through sort of the history of false flags a little bit because we're on the verge of another one. And what's what's happening in Russia is we are really uh, headed for war. That's what it, I mean. It's either a full-on economic war or we're headed for a much more catastrophic East versus West war. The latest is that uh, Visa and MasterCard have stopped working in Russia. They just shut down. So now Russia has made a deal with Union Pay, which is uh, China's version, I guess, of a credit card. So we're seeing the alliance of uh, the dragon and the bear. That's what's happening. It's not good. And part of it feels very staged. And then another part of it feels like once these things get put into motion, they have a momentum of their own. And so now we're headed into a place of uh, prophecy, unfortunately, or at least prophecy that's being uh, created before our very eyes. Let me check out what you guys are doing, what you're up to. Uh, thanks for being here and thanks for uh, being a part of uh, today's show and having some patience here as we get it together. So let's see, who do we have here? And by the way, I know that was a long song and I could have played you, I think, a relatively shorter version of that without the visuals of John Cale. Also could have played you War by Edwin Starr, but I've already played that before. So I can't really play that again in the uh, sort of recent history of what's going on in terms of songs. If you listen to the uh, podcast side of things, you won't hear John Cale. I'm just letting you know because I have to edit that out since we deal with Apple Podcasts and Spotify on the podcast side of things. I have to edit those songs out. So you could be here, though, over at 15 Minutes of Flame. That's OV Flame. And you could uh, listen to the song of the day, as it were. Let's see who's, go who's here in chat. Of course, there is the great Thomas Jordan. Scrubbies is here. What's going on, Tamara? Kelly B. Thor at the door. What's going on, my man, Steve? Sony. Ever since we have the new chat, say what you will about the new chat. It's allowed Sony to be here. Uh, Maurice, my man, 100. The deconstruction of the West continues, especially the financial system. Shitstem. Finance, the financial shitstem. Yes. Ryan, what's going on, Ryan? Ryan W.W., Beth Berry, checking in. Uh, let's see who else we have here. C.C. Uh, Jones, good morning, Fran. Rue 9. J.J. Reine de Blanc, hello, J.J. Kathy Kramer, hi, Catherine. I hope you saw that uh, we have the Sabian symbols class. Sounds like the doors. Yeah, a little bit. 
a little bit. He's they got that kind of galloping. Day divides the night, night divides the day. That's kind of a a samba. That's kind of a samba rumba beat that the Doors have on that. But yeah, I can hear that. Uh, let's see, who else do we have? Anybody new? What genre of this music? It's it. I would say Maurice. It is rock. That's kind of, it's kind of, it's a very interesting question. I would say it falls into the, the post-punk category because it's a little punky, but uh, I would say post-punk. I think it's right around the time, that comes out right around the time of Joy Division, maybe a little bit later than Joy Division, but right around that era. So it's, I think, I would say it's post-punk. Does have some punky elements to it though. Uh, let's see who else do we have. Anybody else? Annoying as war, laugh out loud. Uh, Kale worked in various styles: rock, drum, classical, avant-garde. Look at JJ busting out her John Kale. Why well, I pretty much stopped listening to new bands after the seventies. Hey, it's been what's going on, Beverly? Good to see you. Yeah. So war is not supposed to sound pretty. And I think Maurice uh, hit the nail right on the proverbial head there. So the character that you're looking at in terms of the uh, graphic or the thumbnail for today's show is a guy by the name of Gavril Princip. And World War I starts in uh, the Balkans. And it starts with... Uh, Crown Prince Ferdinand, who is having trouble in his kingdom. And uh, he is uh, the sort of the last of the kings of the Austria-Hungarian Empire. And he is uh, sort of the the heir to the Habsburgs and uh, their reign, just as World War I is about to happen across Europe. And the reason why World War One happens is manifold. Number one, they have to destroy a lot of Tartarian structures. That's really important with World War One. There's a lot of destruction going on with the Tartarian structures. World War One is a bloody, long, drawn-out war, lasts a very long time, and um, uh, doesn't really. I mean, the United States gets involved in World War One in 1913, and the Lusitania, the ship we have right here in the uh, backdrop on the green screen, is the reason why. Because the United States was not ready to go to war. Now, you have to remember that, again, theoretically, I'm, I'm going to use the theoretical term here. Theoretically, uh, the United States had come out of uh, the Civil War in the... Uh, uh, 18, was it the 1860s, 1870s? Again, I have different thoughts about the Civil War. But, you know, we're talking, what, about 40, 40 years, maybe 35 years. And we're really at the dawn of the Industrial Age. And one of the things about the time, like the, the 1900s are a time of a great reset. Because 
when you look at the second industrial revolution, it's really taking place right around this time. And you know, we've looked at uh, the fact that a lot of these inventions or a lot of the industry that they use to uh, populate and generate during uh, the second industrial revolution, which is again, right around the late 1800s, early 1900s, a lot of that stuff comes out of Tartaria. And what they do is they step it down and they make it more uh, commercial and industrial. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of uh, kind of paranoia and fear about the turn of the century. Even if people at that time might've been a, a bit of a replacement society, you know, walking around the remnants of these old world's fairs. You know, by the time we roll around to 1900 uh, and the first part of the 20th century, I believe there is some consciousness and people are aware of what's going on. And people did have some uh, gigs and jobs in places like farms. And uh, there were people who did have uh, skills, crafts, trades, they could bend a horseshoe that was part of their world, horse and buggy world. So um, they could, you know, build something reasonable, probably couldn't build a major structure, but they could put four walls together. That probably wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, there was people who had uh, uh, textile skills, so they could, they could sew something together. There were leather crafters, leather workers. So we had people that had trades. Uh, there were also people who did farm and who did, uh, you know, raise cattle and, and, you know, extract plant life from the ground, right? So there were people who did these things. And then the Industrial Revolution, the second Industrial Revolution comes around. And people are not really happy about it because they see the onslaught of machines taking their place in society. And to a large extent, they were right the machine world began to infiltrate their consciousness. And it's a different kind of machine world, I think, that existed during the whole Tartaria reign, where people were probably more in the driver's seat of technology than they were at the beginning of the 20th century, when Rockefeller and Carnegie and Mellon and J.P. Morgan uh, and Getty, all these people who, who were essentially, I would say they're the inheritors, right? These are the people that play the role of the inheritors. And they're the ones that begin to assimilate the technology. Just, just look at JP Morgan's relationship with Thomas Edison and uh, Tesla, this character known as Tesla. And JP Morgan, <clears throat> whether you buy the company line or not, JP Morgan says, hey, guess what? Uh, Tesla, Tesla shows him what he can do. Hey, look at this free energy. And he's like, yeah, that's really nice. Thanks for showing that to me. Can we figure out how to charge people for it? I think they already had it. And I think Tesla was probably somebody who was either the Elon Musk of his day. He was a company man, or he was able to back engineer a lot of the Tartarian technology, which allowed them to take advantage of the parts that they wanted to assimilate and then maintain control over. So, you know, it's not a lot, it's, there's not much difference in terms of what was happening then than what's happening now, 
with the Great Reset and Klaus Schwab and where we are in terms of tapping out with technology. So the technology that you know we've been given, again, really maxes out with the cell phone. We've hit this plateau. So in order for technology to move forward, they have to be in control of technology, which means there's no innovation. during the first industrial revolution, right? But there was, people were freaked out. They were definitely freaked out. There was a lot of fear that they would be replaced and their machine consciousness or their consciousness would uh, be um, overtaken by machines. And to some degree they were right. And I've talked about this before, uh, men did not really want to go to work inside of the uh, factories. They were, they were, they didn't want to be put in a box. They didn't want to be put into a cage. So the early factory workers were, were women, women and children. They're the ones that worked in the early factories. I've shown pictures of that before, but they eventually wind up corralling men into the factories. How, well, how do they do that? Well, they start a war. They start where they start world war, world war one. And World War I is essential because they have to, number one, begin the destruction of a lot of these remnant buildings. That's number one. Number two, they have to begin the creation of nation states. And there's also this turf war that's going on uh, inside of the royalty and the royal families of, of Europe. So you have the, the Habsburgs, um, and they're and dealing with um, the uh, the Queen of England uh, and you know their lineage. So you have all these different kind of family lines that are kind of jockeying, and some of them are being taken out. So of course, uh, Crown Prince Ferdinand and the end of the Austria-Hungarian Empire is the beginning of that. And what happens is that. I've talked about this before, is that the royalty never really goes away. They're always there in the background. They never really go away. Although the Habsburgs, I, I think, uh, uh, had had some, let me just hold on a second. I have to make sure I've got my lineages right. I've got this voice in the back of my head. Let's go into uh, Crown, um, Crown Prince Ferdinand. Not the band, I should have played the band. You guys probably, Archduke Ferdinand, you probably would have liked the band better. Take me out. Um, let's get into this. Here we go. So they had to, they had the, 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 the ruling families were always in the background. They were always in the background. And every time they would, um, the Habsburgs, every time yeah, they were Austrian, Karl von Habsburg. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. I was right. Damn it. I was right. So every time they, they have these wars, the, 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 the royal class or the ruling class of the bloodline families they move into the background. So they create these nation states. They redraw the borders in World War One. 
that's what happens. But they're still in the background. Then we have World War II, and then they redraw, they blow up a bunch more buildings, kill off a lot more young men, and then they redraw the boundaries again. But they're still in the background running the script. And so it looks like Europe is on the verge of democracy, and they have all these democratic uh, nation states. But in reality, the royal families connected with those various regions are still pretty much in control, believe it or not. That's why they still have kings and queens. And a lot of people think that, or they have these princes and princesses. A lot of people think that they're just um, showpieces. They're not. They're actually still involved in uh, the running and the ruling of these regions. So let's take a little bit of a look here at uh, Crown Prince Ferdinand or Archbishop, Archduke Ferdinand and the role that Gavril Princip plays. Then we're going to get into the whole false flag thing, and that'll lead into where we are with our fun little skirmish that's taking place in Ukraine. This is where, to me, this is where it all starts. Everything that we've been involved with in the 20th century really starts here. Uh, and consequently, also in 1917, it leads to the fall of the Russian Empire, the Romanovs, another bloodline family, the rise of the Bolsheviks and the beginning of the USSR, which ultimately leads us to our story. So everything here is linked. So let's get into this a little bit here. Archduke Franz Ferdinand Karl Ludwig Joseph Maria of Austria was the heir presumptive to the throne of Austria-Hungary. His assassination in Sarajevo is considered the most immediate cause of World War I. Franz Ferdinand was the eldest son of Archduke Karl Ludwig of Austria, the younger brother of Emperor Franz Joseph I of Austria, following the death of Crown Prince Rudolf in 1889 and the death of Karl Ludwig in 1896. Franz Ferdinand became the heir presumptive to the Austro-Hungarian Austro throne. His courtship of Sophie Chotek a lady-in-waiting caused conflict within the imperial household and their morganatic marriage, meaning she was not a member of the bloodline. So he loved his dear Sophie. Uh, it's pretty. Pretty. Uh, she, is she a she? She's got the choker on. I think she's a she. She was pregnant, supposedly, when uh, they were shot. We'll just read on here. Franz Ferdinand held significant influence over the military, and in 1913, he was appointed Inspector General of the Austro-Hungarian Armed Forces. On 28 June 1914, Ferdinand and his wife were assassinated in Sarajevo by a 19-year-old Gav Gavrilo Princip, a member of Young Bosnia. Franz Ferdinand's assassination led to the July crisis and precipitated Hungary's declaration of war against Serbia which in turn triggered a series of events that eventually led to Austria-Hungary's allies and Serbia's allies declaring war on each other in World War I. Franz Ferdinand was born in Graz, Austria, the eldest son of Archduke Karl Ludwig of Austria, the younger brother Franz Joseph and Maximilian, and of his second wife, Princess Maria Annunciata of Bourbon to Cecile. Two, that's T-W-O, Cecile. In 1875, when he was 11 years old, his cousin Francis V, Duke of Moderna, died, naming Franz Ferdinand 
as heir on condition that he add the name Esti to his own. Franz Ferdinand thus became one of the wealthiest men in Austria. In 1889, Franz Ferdinand's life changed dramatically. His, crown print, his cousin, Crown Prince Rudolf, committed suicide at his hunting lodge in Meerlink. This left Franz Ferdinand's father, Karl Ludwig, as first in line to the throne. Karl Ludwig died of typhoid fever in 1896. Henceforth, Franz Ferdinand was groomed to succeed the throne. Despite this burden, he did manage to find time for travel and personal pursuits, such as his circumnavigation of the world in 1892 and 1893. After visiting India, he spent time hunting kangaroos and emus in Australia in 1893. Then he traveled to Numea, New Hebrides, Solomon Islands, New Guinea, Sarawak, Hong Kong, and Japan. After sailing across the Pacific on the RMS Empress of China from Yokohama to Vancouver, he crossed the United States, arriving, guess where? At the World's Columbia Exposition on the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad on a private Pullman car named Mascot. So this guy goes to our favorite World's Fair. How about that? And he stayed at the Lexington Hotel uh, before, uh, before continuing through to New York and returning to Europe. Wow, isn't that interesting? He, does, he probably does the, the World Exposition tour there. What a trip. The Archduke and his wife visited England in the autumn of 1913, spending a week with George V and Queen Marie at Windsor Castle before going to stay for another week with the Duke of Portland at Welbeck Abbey. Nottinghamshire, where they arrived at 22 November, 1122. He attended the service at a local Catholic church in Worksop, and the Duke Arch and the and the Duke and Archduke went game shooting on the Welbeck estate, according to the Duke's memoirs. Men and women and things. One of the loaders fell down. This caused both barrels of the gun he was carrying to be discharged, a shot passing within a few feet of the Archduke and myself. I have often wondered whether the Great War might not have been averted or at least postponed had the Archduke met his death there and not in Sarajevo the following year. So he had a Dick Cheney moment that didn't really become a Dick Cheney moment. Franz Ferdinand had a fondness for trophy hunting that was excessive, even by the standards of European nobility of his time. In his diaries, he kept track of 272,511 game kills. Holy shit. 5,000 of which were deer, about 100,000 trophies were on exhibit at his Bohemian castle in Canopist, uh, which he also stuffed with various antiquities, his other great passion. Franz Ferdinand, like most males in the ruling Habsburg line, see, I was right, entered the Austro-Hungarian army at a young age. He was frequently rapidly promoted given the rank of lieutenant at age 14, captain at 22, colonel at 27, and major general 31, while never receiving formal staff training. He was considered eligible for command at one point, briefly led the primarily Hungarian 9th Hussar Regiment in 1898. He was given a commission at the special disposition of his, majesty's, of his majesty to make inquiries into all aspects of the military service and military agencies. All right, so let's move forward here. Uh, he meets uh, Countess Sophie Chotek, a lady-in-waiting to Archduchess Isabella, wife of Archduke Friedrich 
Duke of Teschen, friends began to visit Archduke Friedrich's villa in Pressburg, now Bratislava, and in turn, Sophie wrote to Franz Ferdinand during his convalescence from tuberculosis on the island of Lozinge in the Adriatic. They kept their relationship secret until it was discovered by Isabella herself. To be eligible to marry a member of the Imperial House of Habsburg, one had to be one of the remaining reigning or formerly reigning dynasties of Europe. The Chotecs were not one of these families. Deeply in love, Franz Ferdinand refused to consider marrying anyone else. Finally, in 1899, Emperor Franz Joseph agreed to permit Franz Ferdinand to marry Sophie on the condition that the marriage would be uh, morganatic and that their descendants would not have succession rights to the throne. That's a big deal. So he's giving up, essentially, any children that they have will have absolutely no ability to have any of the wealth that is associated with the Habsburg dynasty. Now, this is a love story. Sophie would not, uh, let's see. Uh, finally, in 1899, okay, okay. Sophie would not share her husband's rank, title, precedence, or privileges. As such, she would not normally appear in public beside him. She would not be allowed to ride in the royal carriage or sit in the royal box in theaters. So they're really freezing her out. Now, she's got a bloodline. She's a countess, but she's not the right bloodline. Excuse me. The wedding took place on 1 July 1900 at Reichstadt, now Zukupi in Bohemia. Franz Joseph did not attend the affair, nor did any archduke, including Franz Ferdinand's brothers. The only members of the imperial family who were present were Franz Ferdinand's stepmother, Princess Maria Teresa of Braganza and her two daughters. Upon the marriage, Sophie was given the title Princess of Hohenberg. Uh, that's uh, Fürstin von Hohenberg, with the style Her Serene Highness, Pre Deutschland, or Dur I'm sorry, Dirklop in 1909. She was given the more senior title Duchess of Hohenberg. Her her Herzogin von Hohenberg, with the style Her Highness, uh, This raised her status considerably, but she still yielded precedence at court to all the archduchesses. So she was not allowed to participate in court life for for all intents and purposes. Never a function required the couple to assemble with other members of the imperial family. Sophie was forced to stand far down the line, separated from her husband. This is a love story. Like this guy sacrificed his family lineage for this woman and the descendants of their line. Maybe some questionable decision-making here on his part. I don't know. I mean, if you're really into love, I mean, this is a big-time love story. Princess, so Franz Ferdinand's children were Princess Sophie of Hohenberg, and she married uh, Count Friedrich von Nostitz Rienach. That was uh, in 1891, and they lived to 1973. But they get nothing, right? Maximilian, Duke of Hohenberg, he married Countess Elizabeth von Waldberg zu Wolfeg und Waldassi. And um, he lived until 1962. She lived until 1993. Prince Ernst of Hohenberg, 1904 to 1954, 
who married Marie Therese Wood, so a commoner, and then a stillborn son buried in Artstetten Castle near his parents. So this is who uh, Sophie was pregnant with when the two of them were shot. So the German historian Michael Frunn described Franz Ferdinand as a man of uninspired energy. <laughs> oh my God, that's great. Dark in appearance and emotion who rated in an aura of strangeness and cast a shadow of violence and recklessness. Well, he clearly killed a lot of animals. A true personality amidst the amiable inanity that characterized Austrian society at this time. As the sometime admirer Karl Krauss put it, he was not one who would greet you. He felt no compulsion to reach out for the unexplored region, which the Viennese call their heart. His relations with Emperor Franz Joseph were tense. The emperor's personal servant recalled in his memoirs that thunder and lightning always raged when they had their discussions. The commentaries and orders, which the, the heir to the throne wrote as margin notes to the documents of the Imperial Central Commission for Architectural Conservation, where he was protector, revealed what could be described as a choleric conservatism. The Italian historian Leo Valiani provided the following description. We're not going to get into that. It's a very long paragraph. Let's look at his political views. Historians have disagreed on how to characterize the political philosophies of Franz Ferdinand, some attributing generally liberal views on the empire's nationalities, while others have emphasized his dynastic centralism, Catholic conservatism, and tendency to clash with other leaders. He advocating granted greater autonomy to ethnic groups within the empire and addressing their grievances, especially the Czechs in Bohemia and the South Slavic peoples in Croatia and Bosnia, who've been left out of the Austro-Hungarian Compromise of 1867. Yet his feelings toward the Hungarians were less generous, often described as antipathy. For example, in 1904, he wrote that the Hungarians are all rabble, regardless of whether they are minister or duke, cardinal or burgher, peasant, hussar, domestic servant, or revolutionary. And he regarded even Istvan Titsa as a revolutionary and a patented traitor. He regarded Hungarian nationalism as a revolutionary threat to the Habsburg dynasty and reportedly became angry when officers of the 9th Hussars Regiment, which he commanded, spoke Hungarian in his presence. about that? Despite the fact that it was critical, uh, despite the fact that it was the official regimental language, so he's basically dissing them, saying, don't you speak that shit in front of me. If you're going to speak something, you speak German. He further regarded the Hungarian branch of the dual monarchy's army, uh, the Honvedzeg, as an unreliable and potentially threatening force within the empire, com complaining that the Hungarians' failure to provide funds for the joint army and opposing the formation of artillery units within the Hungarian forces. So when I was young, I used to think of uh, names for punk rock bands because I, I envisioned myself as being like in a punk. In fact, I was in a band for a brief period of time. There was nothing special about it. Very, nothing very special about it at all. Never performed live. But we used to jam, and I was, I was, I was the lead singer. I couldn't sing a fucking lick. Um, 
But I had moments. I had moments. Not then, but later. There was one night, I'm diverging a little bit here, but there was, there was one night. Okay, so when I was in Olympia, Washington, I'll get back to this. When I lived in Olympia, Washington, I was hanging out with this guy who was a guitar player. He was, I liked him. He was, I thought he was great. He was an Aquarian. So, of course, he's out there. And I remember one time there was a story where he got really high and he was riding his bike around town naked. Uh, but I liked this guy. He was cool. He could play a little guitar. And we got together and we started to write these songs. And I was really, that, that was my red pill moment. It was 1990. Big red pill moment. So I was really into uh kind of dark conspiratorial. So I, I was beginning to write these conspiratorial songs. And one of the songs that I wrote was uh, E.T.'s in the CIA. It was a very fast punk song. It went like this. E.T.'s in the CIA. I saw him in a limo just the other day. Like a real cool, cool in the suit of gray. E.T.'s in the CIA. It was kind of like that, right? Then the whole thing about Elliot and calling home and it could have been a hit, I swear to God. This could have been a hit song, E.T.'s in the CIA. So I was working on this kind of Illuminati song cycle. And I had another song called, um, He's Mr. Popularity. And it had to do with the Pope and his relationship to IG Farben and selling nerve gas. Please don't tell the crimmies about this. There was Mr. Popularity, Illumin Not Me. That was another song. Anyway, so I was doing this stuff, and uh, my guy decided that I guess he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to. He didn't want to play anymore. He didn't want to. And I'm like, come on, man, this is it. I'm feeling it. But the invitation ceased. So one night, they said, "Hey, we're we're gonna we're gonna be playing in this band over at this like bar." And I think I told this story before, but. Do you want to come jam and sing? I'm like, sure. So my buddy on guitar, uh, and I didn't know who the other people were. There was a guy on bass, and there was a guy on drums. It was the three of us, and it was like an open mic night. There might have been six people, uh, maybe 10. I'll be generous. Let's say there's 10 people in the bar. And this is Olympia, Washington, circa 19, I think 1990. And... Uh, this is like a rock and roll crowd. I mean, I don't even think it's a Nirvana crowd at this point. Although Nirvana would come from Olympia right around this time, but it's still mostly a rock and roll crowd. Maybe new metal or something. So we get up there and I said, just start, just start playing. And we start, they just start playing. And I start to like get into singing. Right. And I'm just making shit up as we're going along and all of a sudden, man, this thing just takes off sonically. Like I'd never experienced anything like that before. It, it was it, it was like this spirit descended into the group, and I was I was channeling someone. I swear to God. And at the end of the song, at the end of the song, the drummer like threw his sticks down and freaked out. He freaked out like he had never experienced anything like that before. 
And the bass player is like, man, that was cool. Let's do some more, right? So it was a very polarizing moment. And the people that were there in the crowd were like totally tripped out, I have to say. So that was my own, my one moment there in uh, singing uh, this whole band thing. I don't know how I got there, but there we are. Um, let's get back to Franz Ferdinand here. He also advocated a cautious approach towards Serbia, repeatedly locking horns with Franz Conrad von Hotzendorf, Vienna's hardline chief of the Austro-Hungarian general staff, warning that harsh treatment of, of Serbia would bring Austria-Hungary into open conflict with Russia. Hello to the ruin of both empires. He was disappointed when Austria-Hungary failed to act as a great power such as during the Boxer Rebellion in 1900. Other nations, including his description of dwarf states like Belgium and Portugal, had soldiers stationed in China, but Austria-Hungary did not. However, Austria-Hungary did participate in the eight-nation alliance to suppress the Boxers and send soldiers as part of the International Relief Force, precursor to NATO. Franz Ferdinand was prominent and influential supporter of the Austro-Hungarian Navy, in a time when power was not a priority in Austrian foreign policy and the Navy was relatively little known or supported by the public. After his assassination in 1914, the Navy honored Franz Ferdinand uh, with his wife and his wife with the, with the line in state aboard the SMS, Veribus Unitas. Okay, so here's where it gets, here's where history pivots right here. On Sunday, June 28, 1914, at about 10.45 a.m., Franz Ferdinand and his wife were assassinated in Sarajevo, the capital of the Austro-Hungarian province of Bosnia and Herzegovina. The perpetrator was 19-year-old Gavrilo Princip, a member of Young Bosnia and one of the groups of assassins organized and armed by the Black Hand, the Black Hand being a group, a revolutionary early communist group with connections to guess what dark occult magic earlier in the day the couple had been attacked by nadiko uh Kabrinovich, who had thrown a grenade at their car however the bomb detonated behind them the occupants in the following car and arriving the governor's residence friends angrily shouted so this is how you welcome your guests with bombs so he goes there and he takes his wife in this car, this open air car. You can see it here if you were in uh, the uh, the live stream, like that's them in their open air car. Pretty cool looking, right? And they're on their way. They're on their way to uh, essentially Bosnia. And the reason why he's doing this is because he can show her off outside of these principalities. This is his opportunity to show his wife off. After a short rest at the governor's residence, the royal couple insists on seeing all those who have been injured by the bomb at the local hospital. However, no one told the drivers that the itinerary had been changed. When the error was discovered, the drivers had to turn around. Ah, this is where history makes literally a pivot, a U-turn. So they're going to go visit these people. He's going to show up and, and be this uh, grand beneficent monarch. 
Okay, here we go. As the cars backed down the street and onto a side street, the line of cars stalled. At this time, Princip was sitting at a cafe across the street. Supposedly he was eating a sandwich. He instantly seized his opportunity and walked across the street and shot the royal couple. His first shot, he first shot Sophie in the abdomen. Now she's pregnant, so that baby's going to die. He first shot Sophie in the abdomen and then shot Franz Ferdinand in the neck. Franz leaned over his crying wife. He was still alive when witnesses arrived to render aid. His dying words to Sophie were, don't die, darling, live for our children. Princip's weapon was the pocket-sized FN model 1910 pistol, chambered for the 380, it was a 38 ACP. Cartridge provided him by Serbian Army Colonel and Black Hand member Dragutin uh, Dim Dimitrevich. Dragutin Dimitrevich, that's who it is. The Archduke's aides attempted to undo his coat, but realized they needed scissors to cut it open. The outer lapel had been sewn to the inner front of the jacket for a smoother fit to improve Archduke's appearance in public. Vanity be thy name. Whether or not as a result of this obstacle, the Archduke's wounds could not be attended to in time to save him. He died within minutes. Sophie also died en route to the hospital. Detailed account of the shooting can be found in Sarajevo by Joachim uh, Ramak. So there you go. This is where it all starts. The assassination along with the arms race, nationalism, imperialism, materialism, of imperial militarism, imperial Germany, and the alliance system all contributed to the origins of World War One, which began a month after Franz Ferdinand's death. So they took advantage of this instability. With Austria-Hungary's declaration of war against Serbia, the assassination of Ferdinand is considered the most immediate cause of World War One. After his death, Archduke Karl became heir presumptive of Austria-Hungary. Franz Ferdinand is interred with his wife, Sophie, at Artstetten Castle in Austria. So this is where pretty much it all begins. With, look at him, he's there with a, an elephant. This guy was a fucking killer. Uh, he's a Sagittarian. So that's kind of interesting because Sagittarians love the great outdoors. And he's born what year, what day, what day is that? December 18th. When is Ted, what is Ted, uh, Ted Nugent's a Sagittarian. When's his birthday? Let's just look that up. Every now and then you hit a gold nugget here. Ted Nugent born December 13th, not far off. See, see the hunting connection? Archbishop Grand Duke Arch Grand Duke Ferdinand was uh, the original Motor City Madman. So this is how World War One starts. Now the United States is not brought into World War One until you see what's behind me, which is the Lusitania. And the Lusitania was a um, kind of a precursor to the Titanic. So let's, let's, uh, let's have a um, little Lusitania moment here. 
we'll go into uh, a little Wikipedia here. Ready for war. All right. Uh, RMS Lusitania, named after the Roman province in Western Europe, corresponding to modern Portugal, was a British ocean liner that was launched by the Cunard Line in 1906 and that held the Blue Rabond Appellation for the fastest Atlantic crossing in 1908. It was briefly the world's largest passenger ship until the completion of the Mauritania three months later. She was sunk on her 202nd, interesting, the 202, the number 22, 202nd transatlantic crossing. So she had, this boat theoretically had been back and forth 202 times. On 7 May, 1915, by a German U-boat, 11 miles, so now we have 1122, off the southern coast of Ireland, killing 1,198 passengers and crew. It's a lot of people. The sinking occurred about two years before the United States declaration of war in Germany, although the Lusitania sinking was a major factor in building American support for war. War was eventually declared only after Imperial German government resumed the use of unrestricted submarine warfare against American shipping in an attempt to break the transatlantic supply chain from the US to Britain, as well as the Zimmerman telegram. German shipping lines were Cunard's main competitors for the custom transatlantic passengers of the early 20th century and Cunard responded by two new ocean greyhounds the Lusitania and the Mauritania, Cunard used assistance from the British Admiralty to build both new ships, blah, 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 blah. So what happens here is that on the afternoon of 7 May, a German U-boat torpedoed the Lusitania 11 miles off the southern coast of Ireland inside the declare war zone. So it had to be inside a declare war zone. A second internal explosion caused her to sink in 18 minutes, killing 1,198 passenger and crew. The German government justified treating Lusitania as a naval vessel because she was carrying 173 tons of munitions, making her a legitimate military target. And they argued that British merchant ships had violated the cruiser rules from the very beginning of the war. It had become more dangerous for submarines to surface and give warning with the introduction of Q ships in 1915 by the Royal Navy. Okay, so essentially what happens here if you're not familiar with the Lusitania, is that they are sending munitions from the United States to the British who are who've been brought into the war against Germany. So let me show you a poster here, um, which is, let me see if I can find it here. Hold on. If I can find it. Uh, 
so this is a this is a, an ad that was taken out by the uh, German embassy. You can see it here. So they've got the Times, uh, Europe via Liverpool, the Lusitania, fastest and largest steamer now in Atlantic service. So right next to where they are advertising, I guess these are the other ships here, the Transylvania, the Orduna, the Tuscania, the Lusitania. And so they're advertising uh, when the Lusitania is uh, setting sail. Right. So right next to it, you can see it here if you were uh, in the uh, live stream. Notice, travelers attending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies, that the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles, that in accordance with formal notice given by the imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters. And that travelers sailing in the war zone on ships of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk. And this was put out on, guess what, 422, 1915, the Imperial German Embassy. So right next to this ad for Cunard Lines advertising Lusitania, They've got another notice that says, don't sail on it. Do not sail on it. There's another one right here. There were multiple notices. Look at this. It's from Reddit. Again, Europe via Liverpool, Lusitania. The ad's right underneath it. Same ad. So they were letting people know. They were letting people know that don't if you are if you're going to be on these ships, you do so at your own risk. They're telling people, and the reason why is because they're bringing munitions in these passenger liners, and of course they know this, and they don't want these munitions to affect the outcome of the war, so they use a U-boat and they fire uh, a, a torpedo at the uh, Lusitania. And because it has all these munitions, it sinks in like 12 minutes. It just starts to explode, which should, should be a uh, clear sign that this is what they were doing. Now, it takes the United States another two years to get into the war. Like the United States was so hesitant to get into World War I. And they have to keep cranking and cranking and cranking. And they have to wait for that very, very important time in. Uh, so by 1913, the United States had set up taxation. They'd set up the Federal Reserve. Two important pieces here to everything. And once they had done that, then they could start to run up the war bill by borrowing money. And this is what they did took them a while because America didn't want to get in the war. They finally get in the war. Um, they get they get in around, what, 1917? Really, as the war is kind of winding down. I mean, the war is winding down, and yet they're conscripting 
finally, uh, all these Americans go over there. Was it Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, fucking traitor, piece of shit. Uh, Woodrow Wilson sends American troops over there. And by the way, they're injected with the swine flu, no, the Spanish flu vaccine. So they're sick as dogs. They're injecting them, right? They're injecting them and they're getting very sick. And they think that this is one of the reasons why the war comes to an end because they're over there, they're sick, everybody else gets sick and it becomes a plague war at that point. I'm not sure if that's really the case. But we do know that there were a lot of a lot of people who did die due to the Spanish flu, but it was really more about the inoculation versus the actual thing itself, right? So that's a really important factor. They have to develop the technology in order to inject all these Americans. So what we have here with uh, World War One is the, the the wasting and the leveling of an almost an entire generation. But it hinges on these two events, right? The, the Gavril Princip event is, to me, it's a trigger event. It, it's not really, ultimately, it's not the main reason why this thing happens, but it begins to kind of spiral out of control, right? This event leaves this leadership void um, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And if I'm not mistaken, the guy who follows uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand is, he's a warmonger. And Archduke, you can see like with Ferdinand, he wants to in some ways be democratic. That's the Sagittarian, right? The Sagittarian part of him is like, well, you know, let's be more liberal with some of these nation states. Sagittarian is also a sign that can be bigoted. It's of all the signs that, and I and I trust me, I love Sagittarian people. And I have Jupiter and Sagittarius in my first house. So I'm not saying anything that might even apply to me in some way, shape, or form. But it's a sign that is that can be bigoted. It's it, of all the 12 signs, Sagittarian, Sagittarius is the one sign that has that potential more than any other sign. And you can see that with Archduke Franz Ferdinand. He didn't like Hungarians. Oh, by the way, that's where it was going. When I when I used to make up these punk rock band names. And because again, I wanted to be like a punk rock singer to band. So one of the names that I come up with was the Hung Aryans. I thought that that would have been a very controversial name in its own way. And kind of catchy, too, if you think about it. The Hungarians, like the Hungarian, get it? Anyway, um, that's where I wanted to go with that. So there is this, you know, on the one hand, he wants sort of this liberal relationship with these other vassal states, except the Hungarians. He doesn't like them, doesn't trust them. So he wants to keep them under his thumb. And then, of course, we have these other events that lead into that. It's, it's this weird, this weird event that takes place and throws Europe into
six years, a catastrophe. And it doesn't really end until the death of uh, Nicholas and Alexandria. You were seeing the fall of these monarchs, right? In Europe at this time, which is by design. And then we, we see the rise of Lenin, the Bolsheviks, the Soviet Union. So all these dominoes fall into place. The poor Germans, we've gone over this before, with the Treaty of Versailles, just get their asses handed to them. And they have all these reparations they have to pay. It completely bankrupts them. But it's in a strange way, it all pivots in this moment where theoretically they make this U-turn to go visit the hospital where people have been injured by this bomb explosion from earlier in the day. The car is stalled. This, this dude is sitting there eating a sandwich, goes over there, and uh, that's where it all starts. 38 caliber. So that brings us to where we are now. There's a reason why I'm talking about this. There are plenty of other examples of false flags. And usually they involve dragging America into a fucking war. I hate war. War is bullshit. If you have to fight for your land, your freedom, your family, that's different. That's not a war. It's called self-defense. War is something that's usually done for profit in most cases. So if we look at the history of false flags, that's just one. The Lusitania took them two years. Two years. Even the explosion of Lusitania could not generate enough um, propaganda to get them into this war. But they also, I guess, had to wait for their little, their little Spanish flu vaccine. Let's go to World War II. What do we have? We've got what's going on with Japan and Pearl Harbor, another false flag. What happened? The United States essentially sanctioned the shit out of Japan, froze their assets. Does that sound familiar? What does Japan do? Japan says, we're going to bomb the shit out of Pearl Harbor. And guess what? Roosevelt knew it. They had... They had the, uh, the telegram communication ahead of time. Those guys knew it. They knew days in advance. They could have moved all those ships out of there. They could have moved them all out. They had, what, at least three days notice, if I'm not mistaken. Get them the fuck out of there. No. What does Roosevelt do? He essentially sacrifices those ships and those men so that we can get into World War II. We get into World War II through the Japanese, not the Germans. We had had hesitancy to get involved in these German wars. So now you have the, the Axis, Japan, Germany, Italy, and I think Spain is kind of in there too a little bit, but not as much as the other three. And, and certainly Italy, not as much as Germany and Japan. So you had, you had the, uh, the Japs, and the Nazis. So we get brought into World War II, false flag. Uh, the Korean War is really weird. It's a very strange war. And there's less of a false flag kind of moment in the Korean War. 
But then we move forward to Vietnam. We have the Gulf of Tonkin. Again, false flag brings us in there. We move forward again. We have another false flag called 9-11, gets us into the Middle East. And we're on the verge of another false flag, bringing us into a greater war with Russia. And I'm just being straight up and honest with it. This is, we're really in very perilous times, extremely perilous times. And every time they go through this, there's always a reset. There was a reset with World War I. They reset all the boundaries, right? There was also this reset with manufacturing that takes place. The industrial age really takes off prior to World War I, but also after World War I, it really takes off. Manufacturing takes off. The United States, un, un, um, undamaged by the war, really becomes the seat of this manufacturing because Western Europe is reeling. Germany, which had been a great manufacturing country, and by the way, when you look at Germany and you look at all the colonialism that took place prior to World War I, you don't really see Germany involved in colonialism. You'll see France. There's French colonies. There's English colonies. Um, there's Dutch colonies, Spanish colonies, Portuguese colonies, but not a lot of German colonies. I mean, there are very few far between. And if they do, they're more like what happens here in Texas, in the Hill Country, in Fredericksburg. They're, they're not here to start their own nation state. They're trying to find some form of assimilation. So here we are, we're on the precipice of another false flag period, false flag era, right? This is, this is where we are. And Anthony Blinken, and uh, who is now kind of in charge, heaven help us. I mean, this is all a neocon effort. Victoria Newland is still in the fucking White House. She's still there. And they are itching to have a war because we are on the precipice of another reset. World War II creates another reset. Right? All these wars are the precursor to resets. The so-called civil war, whatever that was, was the precursor to a reset. The so-called revolutionary war was a precursor to, guess what, a reset. War is the catalyst for resets. So we find ourselves on the precipice of one, and they could easily throw, easily throw another little false flag operation. They could bomb Kiev and blame it on the Russians. And, and right now, this thing is so far down the tracks with Russia that unfortunately, it would take an 11th hour appearance by some great figure to stop it in its tracks. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. In the meantime, why don't we play a little bit of uh, Franz Ferdinand on the way out of here to take us out. Let's do that. Use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to stay open when it's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Thanks for being here. We'll be back tomorrow. Oh, by the way, I am thinking about changing the uh, time of the uh, Monday show. Just letting you know. I'm thinking about doing a Monday night show with a different focus, different emphasis. 
called Dark Side of the Moon. And it will be like a three hour show starting around eight o'clock um, central time. And we'll uh, incorporate things like different kinds of guests, like not really in the truth or world, although there may be some truth or world stuff. Uh, stuff. Different kinds of guests, also a call-in element. So I wanna, I wanna, it's hard for me to kind of get it together on Monday morning because last night I was up for three hours after the show. So uh, I just get wound up. So I'm thinking about doing that. Leave your comments in the, uh, in the chat box. I know some of you aren't going to be into it, but you know, sometimes it has to happen this way. Plus I want to see, I want to cultivate a bit of a nighttime audience. All right, let's get out of here. Franz Ferdinand, take us out. Here we go. <laughs>